You are listening to KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. Altogether, we make up Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, member-supported community radio. We also stream live on the web at kzyx.org. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Mendocino Coast Clinics. In addition to healthcare services, MCC helps those who are eligible enroll in Medi-Cal, CalFresh, Covered California, Medicare Part D, and other programs. Mendocino Coast Clinics is at 707-964-1251 or online at mendocinocoastclinics.org. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Yvonne Boyd Photography in downtown Ukiah, offering award-winning original fine art photography, landscapes, and abstracts, available in a variety of sizes and mediums from canvas to acrylics. For more information, YvonneBoydFineArt.com. Mind if I sit down? Everything you pray for, everything you play for me. Hi, and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing award-winning poet and writer Gail Newman. Focusing on her most recent book of poems, Blood Memory, this evening's program will include a lively mix of poetry, discussion, and inspiration, traversing topics such as how writing poetry helps with healing, trauma, memory, and also serve as an inspiration for altruism, courage, and resilience. But first, here's a song chosen by Gail herself, Sophie Tucker singing My Yiddish Mommy. Of things I should be thankful for, I've had a goodly share. And as I sit in the comfort of a cozy chair, my fancy takes me to a humble east side tenement. Three flights in the rear to where my childhood days were spent. It wasn't much like paradise, but amid the dirt and all, there sat the sweetest angel. One that I fondly call my Yiddish mama. I need her more than ever now. My Yiddish mama. I'd love to kiss that wrinkled brow. Never cared for fashion. 
Before I bring Gail on, I want to tell you a bit about her. Gail Newman's poems have appeared in Calyx, Canary, Ghosts of the Holocaust, California Women Poets, Nimrod International Journal, Prairie Schooner, and elsewhere. Miss Pacha was awarded first prize in the Bellingham Review 49th Parallel Poetry Contest. Gail was the co-founder and editor of Room, a women's literary journal which published the early work of such esteemed female poets as Kay Ryan and Sharon Olds at a time when it was difficult for women poets to find a public voice. She's also edited two children's poetry collections, Sea is for California and Dear Earth. A collection of poetry, One World, was published by Moontide Press. A child of Polish Holocaust survivors, Gail was born in a displaced persons camp in Landsberg, Germany. Her family immigrated to the United States and settled in Los Angeles. For 10 years, she worked as a museum educator at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco. In addition to her work with students and teachers who came to the museum, she also conducted poetry workshops for adults with Alzheimer's. Gail and her husband split their time between San Francisco and Sebastopol. The interview you are about to hear was recorded earlier this week. Hi, Gail. Welcome to Be More Now. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for asking me. Of course. I would love for you to start with a poem. Since I have so much respect for your poetry, I feel that this would be a great way to introduce you a little further to listeners. Okay. Um, Well, you know, all the poems I'm reading are from my book, Blood Memory, uh, which just came out, excuse me, in May. And so um, I'll just choose something at random. Um, the, the book is about my parents who are Holocaust survivors. And this is one of my favorites. It's called Valentine's Day. Now that my father is gone, I send my mother flowers. She sleeps under a blue blanket, alone on her side of the bed, fluffing both pillows just so. She balances as she walks, one hand skimming the wall. Sometimes she doesn't know where her friends are, who is still living. Einstein was right about time, moving in two directions at once. How everything that happens seems to have happened before. How when I stand before the mirror, combing my hair, I see my mother's eyes, and happiness wells up like a wave without warning. My mother looks forward to a lunch of bread and cheese, a glass of apple juice. She speaks of the weather, today being only itself. 
Her time is reeling in, a line cast from shore. But how she loves the sea, the horizon, the flaming sun. My mother, who knows the brutal world, who survives while others did not, says me, I had it easy. As I mentioned as we were starting this interview, that I want to empower you to offer a poem with your answers if it feels fitting. And as I will mention again and again, you are one of my favorite living poets. I keep a book of your poems close by, and I often refer to it. You have this way with language that is truly that ineffable. You can bring the pictures through that resonate a deep emotional impact. So I'm really grateful for that. And your book, your latest book that you just mentioned, Blood Memory, your latest collection of poems is like a eulogy to the dead. It's also very much a tribute to the living. And it traces the trajectory of your family from Poland to America during and after World War II. And the themes are very much memory and assimilation, like the legacy of genocide, immigration, what the second generation goes through. And also, really, there's so much courage and altruism and resistance, and it's so powerful. And I would like for you to share a bit about how this collection came to be. Sure, I'd be happy to. And by the way, that was a wonderful compliment and intro. Thank you so much. Oh, it's so true. I've had this book. I think you <laughs> mailed it to me. I've had it since, I want to say, I got home in February. And so I've, I've actually had it. And it just feels so right right now, even with everything going on, because there is such strength in it. It does have hope, Thank even you. in the difficulties. Thank you. I really wanted to convey that. And, um, I, you know, my parents are Holocaust survivors, and there was, there's been a lot written about the Holocaust, including books of poetry. And people know what happened in the Holocaust. This, this is a familiar story, but each individual story is still so moving and profound. And I wanted to focus on my parents' entire story, not just their time during the war, so the first part takes place during the war. The second takes place in America. And the third, as you said, is a series of eulogies. And it's also about my parents and myself as well getting older. And um, the way the book came about, you know, I was writing these poems. I think the first time I'd made an attempt to write these poems, I must have been in my 20s, which was quite a long time ago. And I published a couple of them in the 80s. And then I just kind of set it aside. Um, and about five years ago, I started writing these poems, and I had the intention in my mind that I wanted to write these poems. Um, I feel like these poems have been inside me, like I've been living with them my entire life. But I think it took time and distance, and I needed to sort of grow up to become an adult before I could really write these poems. That makes a lot of sense because you need that sophistication, that emotional sophistication that does come with age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I needed to sort of step away, step back. Um, if I would had written these poems when I was younger, they would have been very different. I think, you know, if I was in my 20s, it would have been about me and my relationship with my parents. And, you know, I didn't want to write about that. I wanted it to be really about them, not all just about me. So um, 
that's what I attempted to do. And I also thought about, you know, right now it's just, you know, someone said, well, this is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II this year, and there have been lots and lots of programs on the Holocaust and events going on all over. And someone asked me, well, did I write that deliberately to be published this year? And I said, no, you know, I've been working on this book for a long time. But now, ironically, there's another reason I want people to hear these poems, because I think it is because every day now during the pandemic, I think about my parents. My mother's still alive. She's 99 years old. And I actually gave her the book on her 99th birthday, which was just before the pandemic started. And now I think about her every day because that poem that I read at the intro, it's about how much she appreciates life and how you just go on with this feeling of hope no matter what is happening. In fact, I was just looking at some quotes by Elie Wiesel, who was a really well-known writer and Holocaust survivor. And um, he was a great humanist. He got the Nobel Prize for peace. And he said, just as a man cannot live without dreams, he cannot live without hope. If dreams reflect the past, Hope summons the future. So I've just, that's what I've been thinking about. Absolutely. I could not have said that any better. That is exactly why we both decided that this show should happen, because it is so very important, no matter what you face, to hold hope in your heart and love. And that, in its sense, is that human imperative. I just recently saw something. There's kind of two emotions, love and fear. And mm-hmm. we're kind of going between those two. It's like just bare bones. There's ideas that anger comes from fear. and But when you just break it all down, those are the two choices you have to make every time. And I think right now with everything we're facing, with Black Lives Matter, all lives matter with the pandemic, and this kind of way of life that none of us had anticipated living. We all knew change was brewing, but I don't think we expected it to come quite this way. And, mm. and cutting us off from our communities in such a profound way, but as we find new ways to come back in, you know, the one thing that I find that your poetry does and that is what is so imperative in choice right now is what are you doing in this moment? not what is going to happen, because most of the time we're safe right now. We have the opportunity to choose peace right now. And if we do that, at least if everything just goes completely crazy and the world ends, at least you'll be peaceful Hmm. if that happens, you know? Well, yeah, you know, that's interesting because you may have heard the phrase, never forget. You know, that's what people say about the Holocaust. Right. But when, when we say that, and I, we, I'm talking about, you know, not just Holocaust survivors and their children, but, you, you know, just the whole people, our faith, mm-hmm. and everyone, because this is, goes across all faiths. But what we mean by that is not never forget the Holocaust, but never forget because we don't want this to happen again, ever. And I have another quote by Ellie Wiesel. He said, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. I want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to Be More Now, and I'm your host, Blake Moore. 
And I'm speaking with poet Gail Newman, and we're talking about her most recent book of poems, Blood Memory. And I just, again, I've been reading this these last, you know, few weeks. And, um, you know, just it's just so encouraging to see people, so many people stand up and speak out against injustice. And I, I just want to read this poem called Yeah, Sabotage. I was just feeling a poem coming in. Perfect. Yeah, because my mother, um, she, li- she grew up in Lodz in Poland, and during the war, they rounded up all the Jews and put them in this one part of the city and, you know, put a, a, a fence around it. And that was the Lodz ghetto, which was just a horrific place. You know, they couldn't get food. People were starving, but everyone had to work. So my mother's job there in the ghetto was working in the, in the ghetto documents office because the Nazis... Um, they were very good at keeping records and they kept records of everything. So her job was to go out into the community and see, uh, you know, who was living where, who had died. And um, this, call, this, this poem is, uh, I have some notes at the back of the book because I wanted to explain some of the events. So the sabotage was, uh, it refers to one of the most tragic events in the history of the ghetto when the deportations, uh, children under 10 and people over 65 were selected with quote-unquote resettlement, which was a, it was a Nazi euphemism for deportation to concentration camps. So they were rounding all these people up, and the, and the people in the documents office knew about this ahead of time. So this poem, Sabotage, is about how they were falsifying the documents in order to try to save people from uh, extermination, from murder. Her left hand on the table holds steady an index card, while with the right she rubs off the damning curled leg of a five, the ample breast of a zero, adding a loop to make a number older, erasing another to diminish the truth. Though the card is unlined, the script soldiers straight across the page. With feet rooted on the floor, hand-soiled with lead, she bends over the table, working through the thin hours. Satisfied, she settles the card back in the box and pulls free another, while outside, clouds race over the city, the sky bending into tomorrow's light. The evidence is in her hands, a Jewish girl, my mother, in the year of her awakening. Mm. So, you know, I mean, they would have been killed on the spot if anybody knew about this. But uh, as she's falsifying these documents, I read this poem to my mom and she said, well, of course, it was all a waste of time because when the Germans came in, they just they didn't even look at the documents. They just went from house. They they made. Yeah, they just told everybody to leave their house, stand out on the street, and they just picked everybody off and took them away. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. Maybe I can ask you this question. You have poems that are looking at how survivors deal with the trauma and then, you know, the aftermath of the trauma and also how they impart and express those values to their children. So what comes next? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think that would be bringing us into the next part. Um, one thing they expressed was, how much they loved us and we always felt that so um, there's a poem here that actually won a 
first place prize for a poem in the Bellingham Review. And the woman who chose it, Nicole Brown, she's a poet, she said that um, the, the poem reminded her of her family where they can threaten you, but you know they're never going to touch a hair on your head. So she's not Jewish, but she came from a big immigrant family. Um, there's a few Yiddish words in here. In the back of the book, I have translations of the Yiddish as well. Um, but I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Okay. Just a couple of words. Mishpaha, which is family. My aunt kept a strap hanging on the wall, though my cousins years later swore she never used it. My uncle stood outside the kitchen window barefoot in the dark, outstretched hands inside his shoes, mumbling, fresh, fresh, Kindle, eat, eat, or Baba Yaga will get you, that old crone with a crooked grin who sleeps naked in a house made of twigs. I'll call the police, my mother would warn, whipping the receiver off, receiver off its cradle. This was America, but what did we know, green as we were, new shoots rising from old country mud, I could eat you up, the ants chuckled, pinching our cheeks, looming above us like cartoon characters, words shape-shifting in the air. And we pictured them, mouths bulging with flesh, spitting out our bones, sopping up bloody scraps on the plate. As we tilted our heads, listening for the truth, some great love buried behind the threats. Um... I read that will one you, to my will you say that last line again? Great love buried behind? Behind the threats. The threats? Yes. yes. Like they would, they would yes. threaten us, but it was all talk. Right. You know. <laughs> right. But, but, I, but um, my mother said, it, you know, saying the stuff about the bulging flesh, made made her sound like a monster. But I said, but mom, this was in a child's imagination. So of course we knew you weren't going to do that. Right, you knew. And I was thinking about how, is there something else that comes to mind in terms of, you know, that idea of how they themselves, that trauma, oftentimes, you know, we talk about PTSD and we talk about the ways the trauma comes in and they talk to you about it to some degree because you do have this information, but I know so many people who are children of Holocaust survivors so that it was just kind of the unspoken Mm -hmm. elephant in the room. There was no discussion. There was no, because it was so painful that nobody wanted to go there. Do you feel that that's what happened in your family, or was there a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was a child, they didn't talk about it. And I think another reason was, they wanted to protect us. Yeah. They did not want us to suffer. You know, they did not want us to know what they had gone through. But as I grew older, um, my father would talk more. My mother really didn't talk much. But as I grew older, I would, you know, I started to ask her questions. And I think when I was in my 30s, I actually asked if I could come down with a friend and interview her. I, she wouldn't talked they wouldn't talk to me but if i brought a professional <laughs> interviewer into the room they would talk to her with her microphones and all her equipment and mm-hmm. so i actually have about 12 hours of tape from these interviews um but there's this one memory i had that's that's in the book and it's night terror 
uh, just a memory of my father walking around in the middle of the night because he would wake up, you know, he wasn't able to sleep. During the day, he would be, he was really funny and he would constantly be joking around and laughing and making other people laugh. But, but this is what, like you said, things going on under the surface. Mm -hmm. So this is called night terror and it's in two parts. One, I've never killed anyone or held a weapon, yet sometimes I hear in my head the blast of gunfire. My mother opens a drawer and takes out a small blue box, my father's wedding ring, a gold band, but where are the hands, the knuckles, the knobby wrists, the torso, the long toes? Where is my father's chest? Where is his heart? Two, some nights I wake to hear my father crying out like a child, night terrors, then his slippers brushing the floor down the long hall, walking past my room, out of the apartment, into darkness that pools around his feet like a river. For hours, he sits under the silence of the stars. Then he comes back into the house, the clean table, covered with a yellow cloth, the light of the moon shining through the kitchen window onto the red eyes of the clock. Mm. You capture that, and as a little girl watching that, I'm sure the understanding did not come till much later. I can see why you would feel that you could not write this book until you were older and could really understand that sense of how restlessness and experience can wake you up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and, and stay with you in these ways that you have no choice but to go into the silence. Right. Well, you know, what you said about, um, you know, children just know things, they sense things. Mm. And so you know there's something wrong, there's something different, but you're not sure what it is, you don't understand it. But uh, I remember when I was about, I'm, there were, in the 50s, there were lots of documentaries about the war. And I remember, I must have been about nine years old, I was watching television and there was a documentary about the war and they showed the cattle cars that carried the people you know, to the camps. When I say camps, I mean concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And my mother said, oh, I was on one of those. Oh. And I just, I remember the shock of that and what did that mean? Right. Wow. That's a, that's an interesting way to dis, to find out, you mm-hmm. know, because I'm sure, you know, I remember just when I was a young girl and the first time I saw some of that footage and realizing the horrors, unimaginable horrors that were inflicted on a whole group of people. And I was the kind of kid that couldn't really even watch the movies because I would get so upset. I could not separate mm-hmm. myself from what I was seeing and it was just really mm-hmm. painful for me and I'm that way with a lot almost too sensitive when it comes to certain subjects in movies it's as if I can imagine them in my head enough but to witness them acted out in front of me even though it's drama it's too painful I don't need to cry for three hours in the bathtub you know it's like all right, I, right. Can, I can see that that's for some people they can watch that without having that impact but for mm-hmm. me 
I couldn't. And I'm just curious, like this is kind of coming in. You mentioned that it was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II, and most of the camps, start, people started getting released in January, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And I think of that as more the physical Holocaust because it still, in so many ways, continues, right? Like you can't just, that doesn't just end because now it's over and people are out of the camp. You know, Vietnam is, is over, but is it? You know, when you see all the people mm-hmm. on the streets, it's that same sort of feeling. And I just find it so interesting that here we are, 2020, and we're seeing all of this division and hate and extreme us versus them polarities. And it's like as if there's a collective amnesia about the past. And I'm curious, Mm -hmm. this book of poems, does it speak to our journey now that we're on as Americans in any way? Well, I think it does because it's, you know, when you hear people talk about the past and why it's important it's because you carry it inside you right you know and um no matter what what ethnic group or what religion you're from your the past is is who you are mm-hmm. and so um i feel like we need to remember the past not not because we want to feel sad, but because it helps us move forward. Um, and that's why, I mean, this whole book is really about memory. It's about what I remember, what my parents told me, how to carry memory forward. And um, Ellie Riesel said something also. He said, whoever listens to a witness becomes a witness. Mm. And so if you hear someone's story, then you become, you carry forward their, their uh, knowledge, not just their pain. But their lessons, their takeaways. Right. I resonate with that. I believe that. If you, I always tell people if you listen, if someone tells me their dream, then I just had that dream with them. So now I get to interpret their dream, how it impacts me. Mm-hmm. I just learned of a dream. So that fits in with that. I'm curious, the type well, of blood memory. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It just remind me of this poem that there's, there's just a couple of poems here that are really not about my family, but just general poems. But, you know, there's one about just immigrants, you know, why, uh, what that is. And it's called Come. So maybe I'll just read that. Please. So come as you are, barehanded, stumbling, Come like wild geese migrating in winter. Come in freight cars and in cargo ships, landlocked, alone. Come lonely. Come with courage and pluck. Come with luck. Come fleeing toward freedom, with hope. Come broke, broken. Come with feather pillows in your arms, weathered, weary. Come with memories, knots of longing scarred and sore, battered, bedraggled, bewildered. Come with your language and your candlesticks. Come as a testament with the honey of praise and prayer in your mouth. And, you know, again, that's about people moving forward into life from horrific experiences and how people, nobody wants to leave their home. They don't want to leave their country. But immigrants who come here as a result of trauma or as a result of prejudice, you know, things going on in their countries that are unbearable, 
they come here with hope and they move forward. Right. They live. Right. And that last line spoke it all. You Once know. again, I want to remind you, you're listening to Be More Now on KZYX. And I'm Blake Moore, and I'm speaking with Gail Newman, San Francisco poet, award-winning author, and we're speaking about her latest book, Blood Memory. I'm curious about Blood Memory and your choice of that as a title. It's such an intriguing idea. Can you want to speak deeper to that title? Sure. Um, I just feel like, like poetry, it has many layers of meaning, so you could start with the blood of your family, of your inheritance, how you carry, you know, in a way you carry the past with you just inside your blood. It's just Mm -hmm. like an inherited memory. And then the blood is the blood of war, the blood of the Holocaust. Um, And then I just think of blood as a life-giving force. Mm -hmm. So it has those, you know, layers. And kind of the blood that's passed down by your family and what you inherit in that sense as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The title poem, would you read that, Blood Memory? Sure. You want to give it's, a that's little... That's actually... Go ahead. Yeah, that title poem is actually the last poem in the book. Um, and I was watching a PBS... No, it was a... I was watching a Sunday program, uh, CBS 60 Minutes, and they have these really interesting uh, news stories. And uh, it was about Father Patrick Dubois. He's a French Catholic priest. And this was a couple years ago, He'd been, he's, but he's been doing this for years. He's been tracking down Nazi mass graves in different countries, like a lot in Russia and Eastern Europe. And he's been interviewing the witnesses who were children at the time of the murders. So these are people who are in their 60s and 70s, and they lived in small towns, and the Nazis often demanded, you know, that people, everyone in the town would watch murders as they were taking place, watch hangings. But these were different instances. Some of the kids were sort of up in trees watching what was going on, and they didn't see them. But um, his, his uh, research led him to more than 1,700 previously unknown execution sites. So I was watching this program, and uh, some of the quotes in the poem are from the program. Uh, It took me a long time working on this poem because I wasn't sure how to organize it. So I wound up putting it into two parts. Part one, Dimitri watched from a tree. When a woman with a baby approached the pit, they forced her to hold the baby in sight. First they shot the baby, and then her. Anna remembers, when the pit was full, they filled it with a little earth. For three days, the ground moved. Some were still alive. Anatoly speaks the names, Yankel, Rachel, as if he has been waiting all his life to say them. The dead are patient. One century bleeds into another. No one comes. The land stands as before, barren of buildings, trees slouching in rain. Snow falls. The earth turns over, groaning in sleep. 
body's bones falling one on another, metatarsals, slender ribs, skulls leaning together, the dead shielding the dead. The living go on living, washing hands, peeling apples, stirring soup, brushing hair, tying shoelaces and sending children off to school. They live with glass in their mouths. Two, last night I dreamt in Yiddish. The dead stood behind me, tilting like stalks of wheat. I recognized the faces, Zadie, Bubba, Esther, Wolf. I saw my father driving a horse through snow, frost on his ears, hands ungloved. Then he was in the fields, shaking apples from a tree, his friends behind him, sharp-elbowed, fuzz-cheeked, rough voices calling, Moisha. I stood at the grave sites, feet soaked in mugged earth. I lay down my body in wet leaves. I remembered them. Mm. And, you know, this is the last line of poetry in the book, I Remembered Them. Yeah. And the title is Blood Memory, and that's what I want to leave people with is memory and the the importance and the the sweetness of memory yeah Whew, that's a that's a beautiful poem so many Thank lines you. i think the juxtaposition of nature and time and horror come together mm-hmm. once you get and what's so interesting is you know only the first two lines speak to that on the deeper level and then you just have this sense of pulling us through time into this Mm. idea of you laying down in wet leaves and remembering it's like Mm. wow what a beautiful last poem of the book well my father loved nature he loved you know he loved he always would tell me wonderful memories of growing up and being out in nature and in the countryside. So I want to ask you a little bit about yourself and your background as a poet and how you came to be a poet. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I, I always wanted to be a writer. Since grammar school, I remember wanting to be a writer. But I didn't really know until I was in my 20s that I wanted to write poetry. And it was just happened by chance. Um, it was during the women's movement, and it must have been the early 80s. Uh, a friend of mine was, was doing a poetry workshop, and she asked for women. And she asked me if I wanted to come, and I said, no, 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 I don't write poetry. So she said, no, no, just come. You don't have to read anything. You don't have to just come and listen. So I did, and <laughs> I was so inspired by these women that I started writing poetry. And... Um, then I went to San Francisco State and took courses in creative writing and went to a few workshops. And, uh, and that's how you another came in contact one, through Poets in the Schools, I imagine, was through San Francisco yes, State? I don't know how I discovered that, but um, someone told me about it, and I went to a meeting, and there were, there were my people. Yeah, right. They were there. That's how you we know. met through Poets in the Schools. I don't yes. know. You're not working in Poets in the Schools anymore. Do you still teach or do you teach a little bit? You know, I just work. I used to work at a lot of different schools. So I, I kept one school because I had two favorite teachers. One of them retired, and this is the other one. She's younger than me. 
And every year I keep going back to that school because I love her so much. Mm. And it's a great school, too. It's Clara Lillianfall in San Francisco. And, and I keep saying it's fourth grade. Uh-huh. Such a great year. And I, there's three fourth grade classes there, but um, I always say, I don't know why I keep coming back. I'm back again. She, I said, I said, I need to retire. So last year the teacher said, well, just wait three more years because that's when I'm going to retire. We can retire together. <laughs> so <laughs> you're like, okay. I said, Great. Yeah. I said, okay. You know, <laughs> so that's but, a definite uh, no. date. That makes it a little yeah. easier. Yeah. But she's great. And I feel like, you know, my, my teaching, I didn't, I've gone through a lot of phases. I'm not phases, but I'm not a prolific writer. I go through times when I don't write anything for a long time, and then I write. And I, st- I still do that. Like, I go for weeks, maybe even months without writing anything, and then I'll write a bunch. But um, I think teaching, even though I wasn't writing at some, some of those times, the teaching helped me with my writing. Mm. Just by reading what the kids were writing um, and telling them, you know, helping them to write, I just feel like my writing really changed over the years. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that sentiment. I've been doing poetry lessons during this whole shelter-in-place, and I've had to create new lessons, and I've been really focusing on this idea of first a letter to COVID-19 and then how only boring people are bored. So how do kids, how do they (laughs) deal with their lives when they're not able to do what they're used to doing? And the last lesson was about reimagining what life's going to be. What's happening now? How are we going to go out into the world and what's changed? And that last one inspired a poem for me, a very profound poem that I feel just came right through me as a result of that lesson. Mm -hmm. I might not have sat down and written that poem. I actually didn't even ultimately share it with the kids initially because it's such a it, it's maybe a little heavy for the lesson <laughs> you yeah. know it's not necessarily yeah. heavy but uh very complicated and sophisticated in a sense that might be too much for fourth and fifth graders so i did not include that right. with them so i'm mm-hmm. curious about you so your mother you said is 99 mm-hmm. How does she, what does she think of the book well i think she's really proud of me uh-huh she said you know she's when i talked to her on the phone she says how's the book doing <laughs> and she was telling me this for months I said mom but it hasn't come out yet wait you know wait till May because I had some review copies so I was able to give it to her but you know she she saw the picture on the cover I found this on the internet there's a picture of a street in Ludge in the 30s and she saw the that picture and she said um that's my street oh. and i said well you know what you're it's not your street but your street is actually a block over so it looked just like her street mm. but i mean she remembers her street she remembers the um the the address a few years ago i went to poland because i felt like i had to to actually go there to to complete my book and to really i've always wanted to go there and my mother gave me her address, and I actually found the house where she lived in before the war. And we asked someone if we could, I didn't know which apartment she was lived in, but they let us come into the building and go into one of the apartments. And don't you have a poem about that in the book, too? Something about not you going, but someone else going 
shortly after? Your was it your mom? Um, well, I have a poem about my my trip. It was with the the March of the Living. I went with this group, and it was a one uh, week tour. Um, and they basically, it's a Holocaust studies program that started for high school kids, but now they take adults as well. And um, I did write a poem there about the experience of going on this march where they actually marched to Auschwitz. And then uh, they put placards on the railroad tracks in Auschwitz. And actually, the poem, one of the poems I wrote there, it's not the March of the Living poem, but this actually happened. My, my husband had recently given me a beautiful diamond wedding ring because when we got married, I just had a little gold band because now I, I, I know he's going to listen to this, but I don't care. He <laughs> didn't, he didn't, when we got married, when we were getting married, he said he didn't want a wedding band which really upset me. I said, well, how about if we just both of us get the same one? So he said, okay. So we both got a little gold wedding band. <laughs> but I never had a diamond <laughs> ring. So I was getting on in years, and I said something to him once about, oh, I would love to have a diamond ring. So finally he got me a diamond ring, and it was just like a couple of years before we went on this trip to Auschwitz. So I want to read this poem. Okay. It's, called Lo- it's called Lost. I lost, lost, L-O-S-T. I lost my wedding ring in Auschwitz in the dust of the railroad tracks, a diamond set like an eye in the blood-nourished earth. The ring is buried among dead leaves and the footprints of the living who wander the barracks, chattering to quell the silence in the walls. The ghost of my grandmother will stoop back bent like a branch in the wind and cup the diamond in her hand like a fish drawn from water still wet the scent of my hands dim on the shimmering gold and that is the voice of gail newman guest on be more now and we're talking about her latest book blood memory so this is what happened i we went on this march in auschwitz there were at least 10,000 people there, and it was raining. And when I got back to the hotel, my wedding ring was gone. I must wow. have slipped off my hand. And so I, I wrote this poem imagining, you know, my dead grandmother finding this ring in the railroad tracks there. And ever since then, this was a few years ago now, but I keep thinking, I don't know, should I get another one or should I just let it go? You know, it's maybe it's just not meant to be and it's meant to be there in right. Auschwitz. Right. So what, right. what do you think, Blake? Do you think I should get another one? Well, I mean, I think that if you got another one, it would be different. And you did leave one in, in Auschwitz and you get to have a second one. I mean, I do you want one? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> See, that's what I can't decide. But that that sounds good. I'm I'm going to tell my husband to start saving his money. Yeah, right. Time for a new one. I, yeah. I yeah, exactly. I'm curious if there's one message you want readers to take away from this collection. What would it be? 
I want people to come away with this with a sense of hope right now mm. because in a sense that resilience because that's one thing I got from my parents and you know no matter what happens you know we will get through this I know it's a horrible time but already look what's happening I mean things are changing drastically in ways we never expected so there's this Jewish saying it's it's is it a blessing or is it a curse and you just never know how one thing will lead to another. Mm. Yes, that's a powerful message. And I want two things. I would like to have you read another poem. And I would also like for you to tell listeners how people can find out more about you or links to your book. And I'm also going to have a page on the KZWX website that will link to an archive of this show as well as links to anything you give me that can be included Mm -hmm. so people can easily find that. They don't have to write it down right now while listening, but if you want to write it down, you don't have to go to the link. Do you have an answer for that? Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you asked that Um, because that's something I sometimes forget to include. Uh (laughs) Like, where can you buy the book? So you can order the book at any bookstore and they will get it from the distributor. Or you could order directly from the distributor, which if you look under SPD, Small Press Distributor, they're located in Berkeley. So just Google that with, along with the name of the book and my name, and you should get it soon, hopefully. So thank you for including that. Of course. And perhaps you can send me some links. If, you know, there's a yes, preferred uh, outlet that you like, and I know that, especially small press, and you, this, this poem was published as an award winner. You won an award to get this with, I believe it's Marsh Hawk Press. Yes, and actually I was really thrilled because March Piercy was the judge last year, and she chose my book, and mm. she's just a wonderful person, a wonderful writer, a feminist, poet, and a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. So I was I was happy about that. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So do you want to take us out with one poem? Sure. Um, I'm trying to decide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I had one about my mom I was looking for. I don't know if I can find it. Yeah, I think I'm going to read um, Braden. Because somebody said they read the book and they just thought it, it, it just had such a strong feeling of how much I love my parents and how much they love me. So this is called braiding and it's my mother. I used to have really long, thick hair and my mother would braid it every morning. So this is me when I was a child. Braiding. A mother braiding says, Be still, says, here is bread, eat. You are tired, rest. Take this umbrella, outside it is raining. The mother closes at night the door. She rolls down her stockings, unsnaps the brassiere, turns down her side of the bed. 
The father, already asleep, does not wake. Outside, the moon is full, spilling as if from a bucket of warm milk, its luminous light through the window of the room where the child sleeps, dreaming of the blue mist above the ocean and the blue velvet dress her father stitched on a treadled singer, stepping his foot down on the pedal, guiding the fabric between his hands, the needle dipping in and out like a bee inside the honey of a flower. So I just want to say my father uh, was trained as a tailor, and uh, he used to make me wonderful things like this blue velvet dress and a little stuffed giraffe. Well, wonderful, Gail. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you and to hear you read your poems in your voice. And thank you so much for writing this important book and being there as a voice, a very important voice in our time. Thank you so much. It's always lovely talking to you. And I'm hoping the day will come soon when I can not only see you in real life, but give you a hug. Oh, I look forward to that. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we, we definitely deserve hugs, you know. We oh, do. Yeah, yeah, it's such an interesting... And to all your listeners, I just send you my good wishes. Thank you, Gail. Well, that's about it for my interview with Gail Newman. To listen to this show again or catch past episodes, you can go find Be More Now on kzwax.org and you can click on the link to show archives. And all the links that I spoke about in this show are going to be there as well. And you've been listening to Be More Now and I'm your host, Blake Moore. And next, I'll be back with Be More Now on July 2nd with the ladies from Point Arena's newest healing arts community center and Zoom gathering hub, Woven Light Studios. We'll be talking about classes and other opportunities to creatively connect with others during social isolation. And right here on KZUX, tomorrow at 2, we will be broadcasting the County of Mendocino's weekly coronavirus public health briefing. And immediately after, from 3 to 3.30, Public Health Officer Dr. Mimi Duhan will be live for local coronavirus update with time for listener calls. Up next is Pulse of the Planet, followed by W. Dan and some needed laughs from the treehouse, so please stay tuned. And I'm going to close the show with two more young voices from Manchester Elementary School. Hattie Piper reading her poem, Boring, This Is To You, and Adelaide Montanino reciting her poem, Blossom. And then Cheyenne Henderson doing Boring, Boring, Bored. Thank you so much for listening and wishing you a peaceful and love-filled evening. Dear Boring, I would be having way more fun without this pandemic. We all would have a better institute in academic. We would be able to socialize with our friends instead of being stuck in our beds. Being stuck at home is so boring when we could be at the basketball game scoring. You smell like air with no scent of blooming flowers. You taste like a lemon. You look like dust sitting on the top of a bookshelf. You feel like if I was dragging my hand through sand. You sound like crickets chirping in the night. I don't believe that only boring people are boring. And quarantine shows this. So boring, could you spice up our lives and give us a little surprise? Something that would let us have the time of our life?
I'll try to contact my friends more. Maybe I can make socializing with my friends just like before. So goodbye, boring. Hope I do not see you again. No offense, but you're not really a comedian. Blossom by Adelaide Montanino When quarantine is over, the world will blossom like nothing before. I will be grateful for things big and small. I will remember life as it was. I will work to make life as it should be, full of love, together, blossoming, healing. Sometimes I will be afraid of close contact, afraid of it coming back, afraid of catching it. School will become fuller, more interesting, because we realize that learning is the key to life. The environment will blossom like a tree in spring, because humans will realize that we are guests. Earth is the host. I dream that our, our post-quarantine life will bring love, understanding, appreciation, and gratitude. I'm Thank you.